Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is proudly produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about our amazing range of short courses or degrees at crawford.anu.edu.au. And in fact, we have a very special announcement to make about that a little bit later. And when I say we, I mean myself and my esteemed co-host for today, Sarah Bice. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Martin. How's it going? Really good. Sarah is a associate professor here at Crawford School. She's also the Vice Chancellor's Futures Scheme Senior Fellow for her work on the Next Generation Engagement Program. That's Australia's largest study into community engagement in infrastructure. An amazing program. Do check it out. But Sarah is not the only person here in the podcast cupboard with me because we've also got a very special guest, Professor Miria Holman. Hello, Miria. Hello, Martin. So lovely to be here. Well, thank you so much for being here. Miria is an Associate Professor of Political Science at Tulane University, and she's going to be giving a lecture on pandemics and the politics of climate change at Flinders University on 24th of July. So, Miria, what brings you to ANU? I am fortunate to be a visiting fellow in the politics department, and uh, I'm here hanging out for a couple weeks, meeting people, talking to people, appearing on podcasts. Are you enjoying Canberra? Oh, very much so. It's been lovely and sunny, and it is very, very warm in New Orleans, where I'm normally located. So this is a delightful change of pace. So Canberra's a lovely place, but it does have one noted downside. And you tweeted earlier in the week, and if you'll excuse the pun, a very funny pic at expressing some surprise with the (laughs) warning signs around ANU (laughs) about the possibility of magpies attacking you. Have there been any bird-related incidents while you've been here? Not yet, uh, but I will be sure to document them and put them on Twitter if I do experience the any kind of weird interactions with wildlife. It's usually around <laughs> September, so you're probably safe. I think she's safe, but should you experience any out-of-season swooping, please let us know. Will do. Look, Miriam, one of the reasons, besides you know, looking out for out-of-season magpies, is uh, one of the reasons you're here in Australia is to give a lecture on pandemics and the politics of climate change, which, as Martin mentioned, will be at Flinders University in South Australia on the 24th of July. That sounds fascinating and kind of scary. Can you tell us a bit about the connection between pandemics and the politics of climate change? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I'm very interested uh, living in New Orleans, in the United States, uh, in a city that is sinking, surrounded by water that is rising, in a state where most people uh, don't particularly care about engaging in action on climate change, in a country where also we don't see a lot of national action on climate change. And I've been trying to think 
about what we can do. I, I consider climate change a fundamental threat to the future of humanity uh, and something where we need to engage in action relatively quickly in order to do something about it. And I taught a class uh, this last semester at Tulane on the politics of climate change. And uh, I had a great student in there, uh, William Beatty, who is now in medical school. And he was really interested in the sort of health consequences of climate change. What what does it mean in terms of our health and our well-being that our uh, world is getting warmer? And we talked quite a bit about what this is going to mean for New Orleans and for Louisiana in particular. And one of the biggest threats is that we're going to see an increase in uh, infectious diseases and the possibility of pandemics. Uh, we already have some threats from things like West Nile and Zika, uh, mosquito-borne illnesses in Louisiana. And as Louisiana gets warmer, as the United States gets warmer, as the world gets warmer, those threats are going to increase. Uh, so we've been trying to think about what that means for people's willingness to engage in action on on climate change. I think, I think an obvious question then, Mira, is um, – what is it going to take to get Americans interested in this? Because we've had major wildfires in California, in Louisiana. You had the very notorious Hurricane Katrina. How many more natural disasters, how many more heat waves, how many more crazy 100-year blizzards in the South is it going to take before people pay attention? This is a great question and one that people that care about climate change have really been struggling with. One thing that's clear is that uh, if we ask people about their concerns about climate change in the right ways and we make those connections for people, people start to care about climate change, but people also feel very demobilized. They feel like they can't do anything about it. What can one person do to deal with climate change? And so increasingly, the consensus among political scientists that study climate change is that we can't just scare people. We also have to offer them options for in engagement. And so that's part of what we're interested in in this project that I'm working on is if we tell people about how climate change is going to increase the possibility of pandemics, does that increase their concern about climate change? But then does it also spur them to be interested in engaging in actual action and support for national level initiatives to address climate change? Maria, I also want to pick your brains about some of your research. You've published pretty widely on the issues of gender and politics. Here in Australia, we've recently elected the Coalition Party for the third term, and Scott Morrison's cabinet currently comprises of 16 men and only seven women. And historically, women have always had a difficult time establishing themselves in leadership positions in the party. What's going to be the catalyst to get more women into political leadership positions? The reality is that unless we change incentives or institutions or structures, not much is going to change. Uh, so until voters demand that more women be uh, placed on party roles, until uh, initiatives like gender quotas are passed, or until there are comprehensive efforts to either punish parties that don't put a lot of women in cabinet positions or don't put a lot of women on the ballot, uh, 
or reward parties that do, there's not going to be much that changes. The reality is that in almost all politics, the status quo reigns supreme, right? We just keep on doing the same things over and over unless something changes. And so in order to have more women in political office, we have to do something different than what we've been doing all this time. Do you see any kind of appetite for the kind of changes that you're talking about? Well, certainly uh, we've seen uh, an increased interest in the United States for electing uh, women. Uh, the 2018 uh, congressional elections, our national uh, our legislative elections in the United States saw a dramatic increase in the number of women running for political office and the number of women elected to political office. And that was some what the uh, result of Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016 to Donald Trump, but it was also the result of uh, a lot of resources being pumped into identifying potential women to run for political office and then supporting them. In the United States, money is very important in politics and Often, women that are interested in running are reluctant to actually run because they're worried about the fundraising component of it. And so we've seen a proliferation of organizations specifically focused on electing women and giving them the money that they need to run for political office. And 2018 was the first time we saw really sustainable success from those organizations. One of the other measures for potential success or getting more women into government that you just mentioned there, Miria, was around quotas. And quotas are so controversial. And yet we see places like middle and low income countries, Rwanda, Bolivia, Cuba, Mexico, they're in the top four for the highest numbers of, of women in parliament. Sweden's the only Western country in the top 10. I mean, there's all these gender imbalances. Why do you think quotas are a good idea? Well, again, this idea that if we expect for things to change, but we're not actually willing to do anything to change the structures behind what we have uh, in place, nothing's ever going to change. So quotas are these this sea change, this interruption that allows us to remedy what is in a lot of ways a, a history of exclusion, right? There's a reason that women are a lower share of of elected officials than they are in the population, it's not just by accident. It's because women were excluded from politics for centuries. And for most of the early history of most democratic countries, women were not allowed to participate fully in politics, which means that our political structures are designed to elect men over and over again. And if we want to change that, uh, something like a quota is often the only way to really change what's happening. You mentioned, too, the changes after Hillary Clinton's loss to Donald Trump. And we saw in that particular election uh, an explosion, for better or for worse, but it seems now unchangeable towards the use of social media and Twitter in both election campaigns, but also post-campaign. How are female candidates using Twitter? And is it to their advantage? This is a great question. So Basically, in the United States now, if you are running for political office for the first time, you need to have a social media presence. It's not you – know, 10 years ago, it was an, a choice. Candidates could opt into whether or not they wanted to be on social media. And now that's – it's not a choice anymore. You have to have a professional social media presence. The interesting thing are the ways that these candidates are using social media uh, and the different – platforms that the candidates are using. 
Twitter has increasingly become the place where candidates reach out and connect with voters. Uh, a really interesting example of this uh, right now is Elizabeth Warren using Twitter uh, and in particular sort of forming these personal relationships with constituents via Twitter. There's a really sort of funny exchange where a comedian asked Elizabeth Warren to come up with a plan for her dating life because Elizabeth Warren is running for president. She has plans for everything. And so this comedian was like, well, can she come up with a plan for my dating life? Well, Elizabeth Warren sees this and calls her on the phone and says, yeah, absolutely. Let's figure it out. (laughs) Let's make a plan for your dating life. (laughs) See, that's terrific. It's really great to hear some of these positive examples. And you mentioned there, you know, this opportunity to build relationships, Mm -hmm. which if we're stereotyping is a very female thing to do, this kind of emotive. Uh, relational form of politics. Twitter is also known for bullying and trolling and some really horrible behavior. What risks do female politicians face when they have to enter this social media political arena that maybe their male counterparts don't? One of the principal challenges is that uh, we see a lot of forms of gender-based violence threats on Twitter, things like uh, women that are running for office being threatened with rape or being threatened with sexual assault or domestic violence. Uh, We also have a big issue with doxing, which is placing people's personal information, their their home addresses or their cell phone numbers or their personal email addresses on a public website so that they can be harassed by strangers. That is the bad side of this. And it's this issue that if we're in an environment now where everybody is expected to be on social media, and the costs of being on social media are higher for women than they are for men, or this, or there are specific forms of costs that only women really are bearing, then this is another example of how it's harder for women to run for and be elected to political office than it is for men. And that's really too bad. Maria, jumping on to another of your research areas, you're currently working on a book that will look at the power and purpose of local appointed boards and commissions in the US. Yes. And you argue that these boards allow cities to placate residents via sort of powerless volunteerism and to transfer controversial decisions to boards without electoral accountability. Uh, Local boards will be kind of a foreign idea for many of our Australian listeners. So can you tell us a bit about what these boards are and why they're so problematic? Sure. Yes, this is a a new big project I'm working on. I'm excited to talk about it because I basically just sit in an office by myself and think about these things these days. So, Welcome to the world of academia. (laughs) Yes, right. Uh, So in the United States, uh, we have in – in many ways, actually, a, a federal system that's similar to Australia. Actually, the in these are the sort of the countries that have maybe sort of the most similarity in terms of how government is actually structured, with local governments and then states and then a national government. So, local governments in the in the United States are uh, highly independent in many ways, in that they get to make a lot of their own political choices and. One of those political choices that local governments have made, almost all local governments have made in the United States, is to form a variety of appointed boards and commissions where elected officials appoint individuals to serve in either an advisory role or a policymaking position. And honestly, we don't know anything about these boards. Uh, 
And I say that as somebody that went into this thinking that I would review this scholarship and come up with something sort of simple to say. And the reality is that nobody has studied them before. So I'm sort of treading in unknown waters at this point. So there's not much known about these boards. And they're kind of, it sounds like, uh, appointed by choice from local governments. So you can imagine that they may be a bit open to corruption. What kinds of issues do you expect to find? And when you apply your own interests in gender and politics, how do you think women will come out? So this is a great question. Uh, So one of the principal areas where we see these boards making important decisions are around planning and zoning, making decisions about what kinds of housing can be built in particular areas or whether or not... uh, historic preservation applies to a particular neighborhood. Whether or not affordable housing gets built is a big question that these boards often uh, address. One of the issues is that these boards theoretically are open to anybody that's interested in serving on them, but we know that that's not actually how politics works, right? It's not that everybody has the time to go and go to a a once-a-week meeting that meets at 11 on Wednesdays, right? That means, of course, that you have to have a flexible job. You have to have transportation. You have to have the available time. You don't need child care. All of these uh, barriers mean that the pool of people that are actually going to be able to sit on these boards is much smaller than the full population that lives in these places. There's also an idea in Australia of the squeaky minority and the silent majority. So what do you think about that in terms of these boards? Absolutely. That plays out 100%. And so what we see are that if you are a homeowner and you are really interested in preserving the value of your home and the aesthetic of your neighborhood, you might be interested in sitting on a board that then limits affordable housing units being built in your neighborhood because it's to your benefit that your your neighborhood remains single family homes and that there aren't affordable housing there is an affordable housing built there. That being said, there are also a variety of mechanisms in place at the local level in the United States that try to remedy this, right? So we have uh, circumstances where cities have said, oh, we want to make sure that low-income people sit on these boards, right? So we, in essence, have quotas for low-income individuals to sit on an affordable housing board. The issue that I found is that those seats are often vacant, Because it's hard to find people that live in affordable housing that have both the interest and the resources necessary to engage in these types of activities. It sounds like really interesting work. When should we expect the book to arrive? I mean, I've I've got some pressure pressure at all, but I have got some space on my reading list this weekend. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I would say not this weekend. (laughs) Next weekend. (laughs) Next weekend, maybe. Uh, I'm hoping that I completed a full set of 
everything that's going to be in it will be done maybe by the end of the fall and it will go out for review in the spring, which means it will be published uh, somewhere around 2068, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just a conservative. <laughs> well, and also remember that our seasons are flipped in Australia, yes. so you just gave yourself more time oh, anyway. Oh, see, there we go. Yeah, spring <laughs> well, 2068. <laughs> definitely something for everyone to look forward to. And, and thanks for your insights there, uh, Maria. There was uh, lots of ground we covered there. And listeners, we're very keen to get your views on all the things we've talked about there. You can reach out to us on Twitter, where we're at Policy Forum. You can email us, podcast at policyforum.net, or best yet, uh, jump on Facebook and join our Policy Forum pod group. Now, today's episode is brought to you with the help of the ANU Crawford Leadership Forum. This year's forum was built around the theme of rebuilding trust in our public institutions and policymaking, and it brought together a really outstanding group of 150 international and domestic speakers from the public sector, business and media, and the academic think tank communities. And one sector definitely struggling with trust issues is the media. From the fight against fake news to concentration of media ownership in the hands of global moguls, unafraid to flex their influence in the politics of individual countries, to the challenges of establishing new business models in a world where people are reluctant to pay for online news and Facebook and Google are pseudo-publishers, the challenges facing journalism and the media are many. Press freedom is also under threat. In a report published by Freedom House on press freedom globally, 16 nations labeled as free on the index have experienced a drop in their scores throughout the past five years. So we want to ask, what's the future for the media? Is there a role for government and policy in supporting quality journalism? And what will happen if they don't? And we've got a really stellar lineup of guests to unpick this topic, haven't we, Sarah? We absolutely do. We've got Gideon Rackman, who is the chief foreign affairs commentator of the Financial Times, and he previously edited the Economist Business and Asia sections. We also have Siddharth Veradarajan. He co-founded the online news portal The Wire and is former editor of The Hindu. And they're joined by Amy Ramakis the Guardian Australia's political reporter, who was an inaugural nominee of the Young Walkley Awards. And leading the discussion are two of our pod friends, Mark Kenny, the host of our other podcast, Democracy Sausage, check it out, and Jill Shepard. It's a really fantastic lineup. Now, we're going to be back after the discussion to go over some of your questions and comments and to reveal all about that special announcement that Sarah and I have to make, which we're very excited about, aren't we? I sure am. But for now, let's hear from our panel. Hello, my name is Mark Kinney, and you're listening to Policy Forum Pod. I'm joined by Jill. Hello, Jill. G'day, Mark. Amy. Hello. Siddharth. Hi. And Gideon. Hi. Very interesting uh, situation we find ourselves in in, uh, as journalists, uh, most of us, uh, or academics. Uh, We've all got different perspectives to bring. But let's just start this discussion by talking about um, this in a very sort of general sense. Is journalism in a state of terminal decline or is it a case of perhaps Lazarus rising, that some sort of new order could come to uh, to the way journalism or the journalistic project works out of all of the disruption. Who'd like to kick off? 
I, I will. <laughs> you know, why not? Uh, I don't think journalism is in decline. I think media companies are in decline. And the way that we present journalism has just tra- changed in ways that it's completely unfathomable even just a few years ago. So this idea that journalism is dying has probably been around from, you know, the first time somebody started printing up a gossip sheet and, you know, <laughs> passing it around some London city somewhere. But Journalism will always survive because people always want stories. People always want information. But how we present it and how people make money from it, well, I mean, like that's that's the real issue. How, How do we have journalism without media companies? Well, I think you were already starting to find that. I mean, like this is a form of journalism. I think social media oh, and now. and and uh, <laughs> platforms like I'll sign you, you know, up to the union. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like platforms like Medium, social media, blogs. Everyone is a publisher now because Isn't that of a social real worry? media. Because someone who is time poor and not this is my interest as a political scientist. Someone who is time poor and not particularly engaged isn't going to read Medium. Doesn't care about your blog. Doesn't listen to this podcast. True, but then did they ever take any of that information in? No, but they saw even um, even sort of incidentally, you know, they, they do get exposed to media. True, and they're still getting exposed to media even incidentally. But, but, but Amy, you and I used to work at a newspaper together. Yes. You now work for The Guardian, for mm-hmm. Guardian Australia, which is online. Uh, so you're in that kind of, new, I suppose, a new manifestation, a, a new mainstream in the industry. But there's a problem with how that makes money. And going to Jill's point, there's also a problem with if you talk if you if you're talking about a sort of a brave new world where sort of everyone can self-publish, how does the consumer of news discern between what's reliable and what isn't? What observes the ethics of and traditions of journalism in terms of accuracy and accountability and fairness and so forth? How does the consumer discern between that and someone who's just a, you know a freelancer in an ethical sense? Well, I mean, after I answer this, I'll probably get on to solving the Middle East peace process because I think it's you know <laughs> taking just, just just a simple look. I think that. Journalism has changed, but there are still brands of trust in journalism. And I think that that is what we are finding that are emerging. I think what we're seeing is not so much the masthead generally carrying people's trust anymore. It's particular writers, particular Mm. journalists that people are following. And for that, that's something that you still have to build a trust with. You have to build integrity with. People have to know that even if they're just glancing at it, that what that person is telling you is the truth. How media companies monetize that is something that, you know, that's going to take a while to work out. I think we're, The Guardian, for instance, has has seen great success with its contributor model. Begging. Where, well, it is, <laughs> but it works, yeah, you no, know. Fine. It yeah. works. People are paying for it because it's a product that they want to pay for it, staffed by journalists. No, I must they, say, when, when I first to. saw it, I thought, God, this is so desperate, and, but, but apparently it works. Yeah, well, yeah, it, do, it does work. I mean, it's And working. actually charging people, they wouldn't, they wouldn't pay, but if you ask them ask, for money, it's yeah. really weird. Do you think it's worth paying for this? And people say, actually, they can make a decision then, yes yeah. or no. Uh, and, and I think that's where we're going. The New York Times is starting to do it as well. They're starting to do a contributor model as well, and I think that's what's emerging as one of the strengths. I mean, the New York Times is being a bit tricky about it. They're saying, gift this to a student. 
gift a subscription <laughs> to a student right. and they're starting to see, you know, increases in subscriptions because people are like, you know what, people should be more informed. Yeah. We should have a better informed voting base. So I will pay for somebody else to read it. It's that shift in thinking. It's not going to be solved overnight, but journalism is not dead. That's Siddharth? kind of obnoxious, though, isn't it? The idea, sorry, Mark and Siddharth, but the, the kind of idea that I'm well-informed, but Mark's not. And so, Mark, here, you really need to read this. But it taps into our psychology. It's fascinating. It's a concern. What, what, what's your view, Siddharth? <laughs> I think the business model is in crisis around the world um, for the simple reason that readers – well, people like to get things for free in any case. And I think in the digital era and the, e- the ease with which you can access information without paying for it, mm. get films, get music, people are addicted to um, getting stuff for free. Mm. So getting them to pay uh, and getting them to pay enough to cover the costs of news gathering and all the other expenses that go into good journalism is an uphill struggle. I would say particularly in a country like mine, like India, where uh, traditional print thrived uh, largely on the basis of advertising support. So the cover price of a newspaper was, you know, barely nickels. I mean, it, it, it wouldn't cover, it wouldn't even cover the production cost of the paper, you, the newsprint you used. And the, uh, you know, essentially newspapers made money, 95 to 96% of their, of their total revenue came from advertising. So in the absence of a paywall for print, to think of a paywall uh, for a website uh, seems like a very, very uphill uh, struggle. So mm. I think, um, and even even in the West, uh, you have a few successful examples, the FT, New York Times, um, that managed to earn decent amounts of money from digital advertising. But the Actually, more model... Paywall, I think. Hmm? I, I think uh, sorry, I, yeah. what I meant is uh, not, not digital advertising, it's digital subscription. Digital, you know, revenue, yeah. right? Uh, uh, either getting people to subscribe or in some cases ads. Trouble is that the ad revenue online is essentially glommed by Facebook, by Google, yeah. and they, uh, share, they share very little of that. So if you're a small player, uh, chances of earning ad revenue are negligible. And in a market like ours in India, getting people to, to subscribe is also uh, difficult. Um, so I think that this is uh, this is a crisis, and uh, it, I think it's the world. a really interesting point because and and the term you used before investing in journalism is a really important one. I think it's absolutely the, the sort of the core of this mm. issue because um, taking in the Australian example for an election campaign, uh, sending reporters on the campaign buses as we call them with the you know the two sides, the prime minister and the opposition leader trying to become the prime minister. That's uh, an, ex- an intensely expensive experience for media companies to do. And increasingly, they're making decisions not to do it. The sa- same thing with uh, traveling with prime ministers overseas and so forth. Mm-hmm. There's a, obviously, the, the burden is on the sort of legacy companies who've got a reputation and an established market position for covering these things to keep doing so. But they're carrying these enormous costs. And then people are just essentially, other people in this new digital cowboy age are just sort of stealing that information effectively and competing without carrying those costs. So it's a very difficult picture. I, 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 would, say, I would say, you know, those are the kind of costs. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, if I look at election coverage, say in India, you'd get rather less information trailing or tracking a leader than you would if you send reporters out into the field uh, and essentially use... Oh, you've use, got to do both. That's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but I'm saying that it's, it's essentially, uh, I would say, um, 
tracking leaders, yes, it is expensive uh, the way you describe it. Uh, and if papers aren't even prepared to spend money on that, you can imagine that the more expensive stuff, uh, mm. you know, will not get a look in at all. We used to have this thing in, in Australian journalism, which is a sort of crack that people would make, which is, um, you know, we send a reporter with the Prime Minister because what happens if the Prime Minister falls over? Yeah. And then in your country, our Prime Minister did fall over. And uh, luckily, you know, there were people there to, re- to you know, I'm not luckily, saying. This is the <laughs> this is maybe some of the problem, Mark. <laughs> Lucky we had photos of the Prime Minister falling over. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe. It's just I'm, that it was never meant literally and then it <laughs> happened. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be the contrarian in the, mm. the tiny studio that we're in. Maybe some of these, maybe some of these uh, economies are, uh, um, you know, leading to better decisions. And as Sadath says, maybe it's better to not send journos on the road. Well, I was we, talking to, we didn't go on the road. You guys didn't. The Guardian, the Guardian didn't go on the road. It was a decision that was made, yeah. you know, in consultation with the... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Canberra Bureau and all of my bosses, hello if you're listening. But it that, was probably cost-driven. Well, it was partly cost-driven, but it was more like what is the best use of our resources? Mm. And that is a question that yeah. media companies but, I mean, are I, having I to ask themselves. I think maybe that wasn't a, a – well, I mean I quite like that sort of packed journalism and I can see you need to do it. But you, you could argue that maybe that had become a bit sort of ritualized and the press were being manipulated and, you know, who needs it? But there are other forms of journalism like foreign correspondence, yes, which, I was which say, really yeah. are expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, readers, uh, you know, one, one aspect of the digital age is we have a much better sense of what people are reading. Mm. So, you know, the bosses look and say, well, nobody's reading this stuff and it's costing a huge amount. Well, drop yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. But the, but the uh, impact is that uh, the world is much less covered. And so mm. – and, and also that – the other thing that we've discovered is that there are forms of journalism that are very cheap, which is the stuff I do, actually. I mean, actually, the way I do it, I actually have to travel. But but a lot of opinion journalism can just be done, you know, from your bedroom. And so that yeah. there's lo- – and, and actually, it's also what riles up listeners. They, they're they not actually that interested in taking in a sort of complex foreign story, mm. uh, but something that really um, makes them angry or whatever, that, that – draws in people and it's cheap to produce. So you're having a lot of um, kind of traditional, kind of rather worthy, but I don't mean that word condemnatory, journalism, too expensive to do and nobody's watching. And the sort of shock jock stuff is easy to produce and brings in the listeners. So you're getting a less informed debate but a more emotive one. What worries me about that, I agree with that. What worries me about it is that it that sort of journalism was the kind of foundational ballast of the of the institution itself, of the institution of you know major media company journalism. And so Mastheads, you know, seriously covered uh, foreign had a foreign affairs section and seriously cover business, seriously cover uh, economic stories that might be uh, perhaps of a more specialist nature, mm. as well as doing other news. And the, the really great newspapers 
are quite you know cosmopolitan like that, and quite quite you know there's a lot to them. And the difficulty with the world you're describing, which I think is accurate, is that everything becomes like everything else, and we just you know what, what is your market position when everyone is just sort of you know watching the news on a monitor rather than being out with the prime minister. In in the recent election, for example, the argument that occurred with Bill Shorten, the opposition leader, you know about six or seven days into the campaign, on the uh, economic costs and growth costs, you know, potentially of Labor's carbon reduction plans became quite a story. Now, that would not have become a story were reporters not persistently oh, I pressing think Labor that had, question. I mean, in that instance, Labor had been asked about it and that happened in a particular time when there wasn't a lot of news happening on the election campaign either. Like, that was that was a moment that they're, like we knew what Labor's position was on things. We didn't know what the government's position was on things. They weren't saying. So all of a sudden, everything zeroed in on what Labor was going to be doing. And that left the government kind of quite open to just keep reacting to what Labor was not answering. So I don't necessarily yeah, but think... but Labor should have been professional enough to know that, that this was going to happen. Of course, but I'm not necessarily saying that that is a moment that only happened because journalists were on the campaign. Mm. I mean, journalists were everywhere and journalists are always asking those questions. I think part of the problem, though, is that with social media and with the way that people consume media, it's very siloed now. Before you used to get a mix of views, a mix of opinions, mm. you wouldn't necessarily agree with it, but you would be like, yep, because you're flipping through something. Now, your feeds are curated to mm. what you click on or what you look at, and you just keep getting all of that sent to you over and over and over again, just confirming your own bias of the of the world. And an example of that is one of my friends was talking about her father and she said that he's always been like, you know, quite a, you know, reasonable sort of guy who's, you know, maybe probably swings a bit right wing, but he's just kind of been a bit like ho-hum about politics. She recently started talking to him about politics and he was really, really angry all the time, really worked up on stuff that she just didn't think that he'd ever shown any interest in. She house sat for them and turned on the television and it was onto Sky News on their regional stations because Sky Murdoch owned is now broadcast in regional areas. And that's what he had been consuming, a bunch of people being very, very angry after dark on certain issues. And he had been feeding off of that. And then all of a sudden he's worried about religious freedoms and things he's never even mentioned before in his <laughs> life. So this touches on the, the what Gideon was talking about with the uh, opinion is cheap. Yeah, right? what an it's awful, ragegasms, what, right? <laughs> ragegasms. I want to peek behind the curtain a little bit because as the non-journalist in the room, I'm going to keep reminding you all of that and, and my um, self-righteousness because of that fact. Gideon, so you are looking – I know that journalists are looking almost obsessively or editors are looking at least at at uh, page views and time spent on different articles. And sometimes I've written opinion pieces and things for different outlets and they send me these figures back. Oh, People awesome. spent, you know, 70 <laughs> seconds on your article and it's it's terrifying. Has it changed? So I want to ask you two things to Gideon and Siddharth. Has it changed the the nature of the stories that you write personally? And then second, is there a sense in the newsroom that your stories are perhaps being subsidised by someone who is pushing out lots of opinion pieces or someone who is pushing out sort of more clickbaity type articles? Is there a sense that you are all competing for a, a small set of resources and that you are, um, in a sense, I guess, competitors with each other? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm in a sort of oddly privileged position because the FT made its uh, a, a choice um, a while back, which they may now be revisiting. But to You're out to, of the well, to, um, to promote opinion. Yep. And so I sometimes feel some twinge of guilt, you know, because I tend to be put on the masthead, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, wow, you know, I'd kind of knock that out. And then there's somebody who's uh, spent, you know, weeks on a, on a project or something. It's a very well-reported piece. But it's online, actually, it's much less forgiving than the paper, you know, where you mm. flip through. If you're not really on the homepage – you, you, you're you're in danger of, of not really being read. And so that that is, I mean, it, as far as I know, it's sort of fairly civilized, but I can see it's 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 a tricky competition. But in terms mm. of my own decisions about what to write, yeah, I mean, you get, um, you can see what's read and what's yep. not read. Fortunately, in some ways, it's not utterly predictable. I mean, it's, it's kind of largely predictable that, Trump and Brexit are the two things our readers are pretty obsessed by. And so if I want to play safe, I'll just write about Trump and Brexit. Um, and I, it sounds almost silly, but depending how confident I'm feeling, if I'm sort of feeling like, you know, I'm about to be sacked next week or <laughs> very into that, then I'll play safe and write stuff about uh, that, that I know the readers are likely to read. Yep. Um, if I'm feeling okay, things are going quite well, I'll write about Australia, you know, or something. And <laughs> no, then, one's something no one's interested <laughs> no, in. I'm, I'm kidding, but you, you know what I mean. You'll pick a, Absolutely. Uh, you'll, you'll choose subjects that you think, okay, these are important, uh, and and I don't really care this week if it doesn't get that much read. It's part of my job to to try to cover a breadth of issues. That's fascinating, uh, and I agree with it completely. I got to say, as a columnist, I, I feel the same way. I mean, oh, yeah, really? Yeah, because yeah, it's not just me being neurotic. No, no, <laughs> I, no. I, I, I think it's right. I think the the fact that we have this feedback loop. I mean, it used to be that you know, three three or four days after you wrote something, a letter might appear in the yeah. letter to the editor, yeah, yeah. and that was about as much feedback as you got. Occasionally, a bit of verbal feedback and 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 that kind of thing from people you knew. But now, of course, the feedback loop is immediate, and you and you can tell how how long people stay with articles. You know, they've got analytics mm. on everything. Yeah, and you. Right. If you, if you, everyone in the media industry feels a certain amount of pressure because the industry is under such stress, and so if you know a certain line of argument or a certain topic is is you know is very popular with the business model market that you your your masthead has, then you're going to look to maximise your own value to the company by by being that. It sounds um, almost paralysing. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, know, you could argue it's a good thing. I mean, you know, maybe we should know what the readers want to write about and cater to them rather than just saying, well, I've decided that, That's you know. That's provocative. Exactly, <laughs> except, except that the old idea of a newspaper was that you you took people – that the editor made the editor made sure. decisions about something that was on the front. There was a sort of an implied contract, it seemed to me, that you picked up the paper in the morning – and between you, the reader, as a sort of a customer, and the editor, editorial team, there had been this. There was this unspoken agreement, which was that they've put certain stories on the front because you need to know that in this paper on this day, these are the most, the biggest and most important stories. And you could understand that, and they they were stuck with them for the day. That was mm. the newspaper for the day, right? All of that's become sort of fluid. This yeah. Kind although of, I think, I mean, I hope that, say, if the FT editors are thinking strategically, or even writers, that we sort of, in our less or more rational moments, think that 
even if particular stories individually aren't picked up that much. Part of the general proposition of the paper is actually that unlike a lot of other places, we do cover the world, that we will have stories on Latin America mm. or whatever, and people sort of want them to be there even if they're not reading them that day because <laughs> it's part of the idea that people will remember. You know. So one of the things that we do at Policy Forum Pod is we try to speak to policymakers. We're located here in Canberra. So I want to ask you each uh, one final question. What could government do to help you guys as journalists and as members of, of fair, fairly sort of traditional and important mastheads to uh, better support quality journalism? So we might start with you, Amy. Uh, fix our defamation laws because they're absolutely horrendous and actually set outside proper press freedoms because there is a lot that we cannot report in very important spaces because the definitions of national security are mm. kind of so broad and ridiculous in this country that often it's because a person in power has been embarrassed rather than the fact that it actually has an impact on national security. That would probably be number one. Tackling Google and Facebook and the rest of it, that's a wider conversation mm. that you know I'm not going to be able to, to sum up in these 30 seconds. Um, my checklist would have three things. Uh, the first would be, again, defamation. Uh, we have insane defamation laws in India. We perhaps the only democracy to still have criminal defamation apart from civil Ugh. defamation. So uh, the wire, which is, uh, has been around for four years, is facing, let's see, 14 defamation cases, four of which are criminal. The remaining 10 are civil where damages worth something like $2 billion are being asked of us. And these are all rubbish cases. But they, they waste my time, right? And I think that some kind of ref, some reform of this is necessary. Uh, in addition to other kinds of legal, uh, we don't so much have the national security mm. uh, problem, but I think that there are other ways in which the you know authorities and government can come in the way of, of press freedom. Second, uh, the Prime Minister of India uh, spent the first five years of his tenure uh, <laughs> without holding a single press conference. Uh, and I think it's I think it's important in any democracy that the prime minister and other ministers regularly meet with the media in unscripted, unguarded interactions rather than having uh, heavily scripted kind of interviews, which is the sort of interaction he prefers. There's a lot that a journalist can get out of uh, those kinds of interactions, provided they aren't gamed uh, or scripted from the start. Uh, and uh, the third is that India has a fairly robust right to information law. Uh, which allows people, including journalists, to get information out of ministries. Uh, uh, over the last five to eight years, systematically, governments have worked to undermine that law. And this has created, um, you know, uh, essentially made it more difficult to get information out. So it would be nice to see that trend reversed uh, in some way. It's incredible how universal some of these problems mm. are in India. It's Gideon. almost like the same country. So it's always up. like the same country. <laughs> well, I mean... I, I feel slightly inadequate because I don't have anything to add to the conversation. I mean, in the sense that I actually don't spend my life worrying about the government. Maybe I sort of live in a, you know, well, it's just going so well. British utopia. No, I mean, obviously, no. But in terms of the way I do my job, yeah. I mean, if the, it seems to me the FT will sort of stand or fall by, you know, the market, the changes in the media, some of which seem, you know, malign, unfair. But it's essentially it's a, us getting the proposition right and finding a way of making it pay, mm. and I. You know, it's possible that if I were the chief executive or the editor, I would immediately have a list of things that need doing. But sitting as somebody writing, it doesn't seem to me that the government's that important, actually. That's a good sign. Yeah. That's absolutely. what you want. I'm going to, just for the sake of being different, yeah. uh, answer it with a uh, with a um, 
another one, and that is to say, what can governments do to to support quality journalism? Stop playing favourites. I mean, governments, uh, particularly in this country, just feed one media company uh, a bunch of information all the time with the hope of getting favourable coverage and there's just a constant battle about it and I think it's, it's, it's really mediocre. It leads to toadying reporting on, on the part of those companies that are on the receiving end and it leads to a sort of a, you know, an ongoing undignified process. In, in, and I, I would like to see governments just be a little fair about that and uh, and and uh, I agree with all the other points about defamation and uh, regular access and those sort of things. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you to our guests today for their contribution. Uh, don't forget to stick around for part three of our podcast. So thank you once again to all of our guests. That was a really fascinating discussion. I'm still here with Miria and Sarah. Sarah, what did you make of it? Oh, there was so much there, wasn't there? There was the shift away from these powerful media companies. There were rage gasms. There were questions about. I love uh, that. Term. <laughs> I'm going to figure out how to use that somewhere in my academic life. Uh, but also, one of the things that really stood out for me was the story that Amy told about a friend of hers whose dad was inundated with Sky News in a regional part of Australia. And I think that there really is something to the increasing prevalence of echo chambers to a society being influenced and almost infected by constant echo chamber type media, which is raising anger and hatred and concern about issues that maybe aren't the top issues of the day. So I think for me as a social scientist, that really stood out. And Miria, I don't know, what do you think? Do we have a, a pandemic of really bad media at the moment? Well, I actually don't think that we have a pandemic of really bad media. I think that it's become easier and easier for people to self-select into hearing only what they want to hear. And that, particularly in the United States, has led to uh, what Lily Mason talks about as sort of partisan tribalism, that you become part of this party-based tribe and you only like people that are part of your tribe and you don't like people that are not part of your tribe. And the media just reinforces this, this in-group, we're like this, they're like that, we're different, there's no way that we have any possibility of being in dialogue with the with people that are different from us. I think it's fascinating, isn't it, at this time when we have a greater capacity for global mobility than ever before in human history, what we're seeing is what Kishore Mahbubani would call a retreat to the fortress. Yes. There's a rise in nationalism. There's a rise in populism. And we're seeing that reinforced by, as you say, this kind of media tribalism. And it's also we're at the point right now where we have more information at our fingertips than anybody has ever had before, right? Just on your smartphone, you can get information about anything. Oh my God. The other week, a friend and I were like, who is that guy on Scooby-Doo? Not Shaggy, the other one. And we actually tried to figure it out without Google. Eventually we did, but it was really hard. Did you have to go to the library and look at uh, sort of dusty textbooks? Fortunately, one of the waiters at the restaurant we were at knew. (laughs) Yes. And so we have all of this information available to us, but what we're choosing to do is just access a narrower and narrower set of that information. Is this also where Trump is able to get away with these claims about fake news? There's just so much information available that if you're in an echo chamber and you're hearing your views reinforced, 
it's easy to think that other things are being made up. Yes, and other things are being made up, right? We do have fake news. Is it everywhere? No, absolutely not. We have really high-quality journalism everywhere, but we also have fake news, and it's become harder and harder for some people to differentiate between those. So there you go, listeners. You've heard what we thought of that fascinating discussion, but what did you think about it? Do let us know. You can reach out to us on Twitter. We're at Policy Forum. You can email podcast at policyforum.net or better yet, jump on the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod on Facebook and let us know there. Now, I mentioned at the start that Sarah and I have a very special announcement to make. So let's do that now. Sarah, I'm sure the listeners will have been pondering, maybe even speculating whilst they were listening to the podcast about what this amazing piece of news is. So can you rule out any of the things that they might have been speculating about? Oh, well, I can tell you, Martin, uh, it is not us announcing the redacted portions of the Mueller report. Uh, It is certainly not us announcing that Brexit is not going forward and that Uh, Boris Johnson won't be the next PM. This is a great disappointment (laughs) to me as well as the listeners. (laughs) Yes, uh, I I hate to disappoint the listeners. Uh, And it's also that Kim Kardashian will will not be running for Democratic nominee uh, in the U.S. during the next election. So so those things I can definitely rule out. All right. So there you go. That rules out those options. Uh, I hope people aren't too disappointed here in those things. But what is the news, Sarah? Uh, Well, let's hear it. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Got a story you want to tell? Or an audience you want to reach through the magic of audio? Then we've got the short course you've been waiting for. I'm Martin Pierce, And I'm Sarah Bice. And we're running a very special podcasting for professionals short course here at the ANU's Crawford School. We'll teach you everything you need to get your idea into audio and out to an audience. We'll answer all the questions you might have, like... What should I call my podcast? What formats work? What equipment do I need? How do I do interviews? How do I write a script? How the hell do I use this audio editing software? How do I reach my adoring Spotify audience? And how do I know if I've been successful? So many questions, Martin. And so many answers, Sarah. Plus, you'll get hands-on experience right here in the Crawford Podcast booth. And you'll get to meet some of the Crawford Podcast game. That's Podcasting for Professionals short course. Find out more at bit.ly forward slash policy podcasting. That's bit.ly forward slash policy podcasting. That is very exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. What about you, Sarah? Of course I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be spectacular. And if you're lucky enough to be in the room with us, you're going to think it's spectacular too. Now let's move on and take a look at some of your questions and comments over the last week. There have been some cracking discussions this week, which we've all enjoyed. There's been some great uh, uh, chat on our Facebook podcast group. Uh, Shireen Leman talked about how frustrated she is by the lack of political vision and leadership, and something that's a concern for many of us. Mary, the election cycle is getting underway again in the US. What do you make of the quality of political vision and leadership there? Well, uh, Mark, we actually are blessed in many ways with a uh, wide set of options uh, going into the 2020 presidential election in the United States. Uh, we now have 21, I believe, real candidates running on the Democratic ticket. And last week we saw for the first time uh, them meeting head-to-head in a in two nights of debates. And I was pleasantly surprised, honestly. Uh, 
at first it seemed like this crowded field was just going to produce a lot of noise. But what we saw in the debates were some really compelling ideas about what we need to engage in, what the kind of conversations that we need to have in the United States about issues around immigration, around uh, women's rights, around the environment, around climate change. Uh, So Hopefully, all of this uh, continues to produce some real some real conversations about the types of issues that are facing people in the United States. Well, Miria, I think that one of our listeners, Owen Lawson, would be really pleased to hear that because he left us a lovely comment and said that he finds comfort in the art of actual policy discussion here and in the podcast. So we're really glad you're enjoying the podcast, Owen. Miria, on our Facebook group this week, we put up a list of all the great podcasts that our members listen to. What's on the top of your pod listening list? So I listen to the 538 podcast, which is a uh, data wonk podcast about mostly American politics, but lots of other things too. And there's lots of academics that are on it. And they have some really interesting discussions there of the presidential election, of polling, of the quality of polling today in the United States, and specific issues like what are people thinking about immigration? What are people thinking about the environment? What are people thinking about race relations? Uh, So that's on the top of my list. I also really like a podcast that that's uh, out of Canada. That is the uh, academic and the and the activist, uh, which pairs academics and uh, community activists to talk about issues that they think are important, and uh, really draws some interesting uh, threads about how academics view things and how community activists view things, and where there are similarities and where there are differences. Yeah, these both sound like great podcasts. I think we'll add those to the list. Definitely going on my list, Mark. Yeah, mine, mine too. Now, listeners, of course, uh, giving us your suggestions for podcasts and comments and questions. Uh, It doesn't just help us in terms of structuring the podcast, but it could also win you one of our highly prized Policy Forum pod mugs. They make everything taste at least 120% better. That is statistically proven. Absolutely. Lab proven. Lab proven. Science. science. Clinical. It's science. Yeah, not fake news. And of course, you'll be the envy of your workplace. Sarah, you're enjoying your tea from one of these exclusive I Got 99 Policy Problems But A Brew Ain't One mug. Uh, How are you enjoying your tea experience from that? Oh, you know what? The tea never tasted better, Martin. I I feel like a real policy wonk when I drink from that mug and I'm still trying to figure out the joke. (laughs) Maria, (laughs) I think we'll give you one of these mugs as well. Oh, I'm I'm so excited. They travel really well, I can tell you. I've got one back in China too. So let's have a look at some of your comments from previous podcasts first. We put out podcasts a couple of weeks ago called A Policy Wishlist with Helen Sullivan in Arla Cooper and Janine O'Flynn. And we asked the panel to give us their wishes on what policies Australia and its new government should put in place from tackling climate change to addressing disadvantage and all points in between. There are a couple of comments I want to read out. Annette Schneider wrote, we should ban export coal, ban export gas and bring in a federal ICAC. And there was a comment from Nana Rowe, who wrote, more government housing, quicker processing of people's pension, and the basic wage increased by at least $20 a week. What do you reckon of those wishes, Sarah? 
I reckon you had a superstar panel, and those are all really good wishes that came out. And I'd love to see Santa or the Tooth Fairy or somebody come along and grant them. A lot of them make a lot of sense. Uh, to Annette Schneider's point on Facebook about banning export coal, banning export gas, and bringing in a federal ICAC, this is a very interesting but also very controversial idea. And until we get policy settings in place to better promote renewables to really address climate change, we're probably not going to see the economic trade-offs that would be necessary for that particular request come into play. As to the other two, I think what's important in those is that we see a call for greater fairness and better equality throughout Australian society. And I think it makes total sense that that $20 a week should be after tax. It still doesn't seem very much, does it, $20 a week? I was calculating in my head before very slowly, well, $20 a week, what would that be? It's not much. It's not much. And I think uh, that it suggests to us how we think of our elderly citizens and pensioners, or at least how the current government thinks of them. Miria, let me put you on the spot here. What would be the top of your policy wish list? Well, certainly any uh, any policies that are going to address climate change, I think, are very important. Uh, one thing that has been sort of a constant part of the discussions that I've had while here in Australia is that a lot of the homes are not appropriately insulated, which means that we have pretty high levels of inefficiency in terms of home heating and cooling. Thinking about ways to address climate change in in ways that are also going to make people's lives better. Uh, certainly insulating homes, making cl- homes more efficient, uh, making it easier for people to live in them, and then also lowering their bills and using less energy. Those types of policies would be certainly something that I would be interested in seeing. It would also help Australia move out of the number one spot for per capita hot water bottle use. <laughs> Mm. Yes, I can understand that. <laughs> Is that a scientific fact as well? Lab proven. <laughs> Lab proven. Science. Clinically tested. <laughs> well, a big thank you to everyone who has commented. And a reminder, do keep sending them in. We love hearing your thoughts about things. Now, I want to welcome a few new members of the Facebook group. So hello to Kira Lee Robinson. Peter Raich Shritaka and Joshua Loud. I'm sorry if I mangled any of your names there. And thanks, everyone, for the great suggestions about possible future topics for pods. So we've got a couple I want to read out to you here. Joshua wrote he would like a pod on the ins and outs, the makeup of the Senate, and how many senators will the government need to pass legislation and what legislation is going to be hard to pass. That sounds like one that our Democracy Sausage podcast might like to have a crack at. And Georgia wrote... Not sure if you might have done something like this before, but I think a podcast on emergency fuel reserves would be interesting. The requirement to have it, why we're not meeting the target, and how it might be affected by technology that's developed for renewable energy sources. Now, I think that's a very interesting topic. There was a the IEA suggests that countries need to have a 90-day fuel reserve, and there was a report from the Department of Environment in December that said Australia currently only has 23 days of jet fuel supply, 22 days of diesel, and 18 days of automobile fuel reserve. What do you make of all that, Sarah? Well, it's a little concerning given how far we are from anything else in the world. So it does make me think, hmm, okay, let's plan ahead. I think it's a really important point, and it's one that's not really entered into our current energy debate because we have had so much focus on the transition from coal and on renewables, and those issues are incredibly important, and that's why the priority has been there. But this issue being raised by Georgia is one that's certainly worthwhile considering, and the fact that we have reserves that are 
all less than one third of the suggested requirement by the IEA, it would it would say to me that it's something we may want to think about. Particularly with the uh, the amount and number of sort of bubbling uh, bubbling international conflicts happening around the region, right? Yeah, I think so. I think it's about being prepared. You know, I was a Girl Scout, and it was always the motto is "Be prepared." And I'd like to see my beautiful home country of Australia be prepared. Well, so thank you, Joshua, and thank you, Georgia, for those excellent suggestions. We are really keen to get your thoughts on the topics you'd like to see covered on the podcast. Jump on the Facebook group, let us know, or reach out to us on Twitter. So that brings us to the end of the podcast. So thank you, Sarah, for your excellent co-hosting duties today. Thank you, Martin. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you, Miriam. It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast today. Delight to be here. And I wish you all the best of luck in avoiding uh, killer magpies. I'll try. I'll try. So uh, thanks to you listeners. Don't forget to hit subscribe to this pod on whatever platform you're listening. We're on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else you might get your podcasts. And thanks to everyone who has left us a review. We love reading them. Now, this episode of Policy Forum Pod has been produced by Yulia Ahrens and edited by Branko Svedievich. Thanks both. I love your work. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum Pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. Cheerio.